0: Hello and welcome to the Commonweal Policy Podcast. I'm Craig i and the Head of Policy and Research at Commonweal. And this week I'm joined once again by Keith Baker, uh, the a Researcher in Energy Poverty at Glasgow Caledonian University and a member of our very own Energy Working Group. Uh, welcome back, Keith. I told you it wouldn't yeah. be there so long till we saw you again. <laughs> it's not been so long this time and for reasons we'll come to
1: at the end, I might be back again soon. But, uh... Yes, <laughs>
0: Uh, so this week we are delving into one of the papers that, that you did for us uh, a little while ago now uh, on energy performance certificates. This is the measure that Scotland uses to, uh, this is the framework that Scotland uses to measure thermal efficiency in homes and other buildings. And we're going to talk about what they are, why they're doing it wrong and how we can do it better. Uh, so we'll start off just at, at the very basic why do we need to worry about how we insulate our buildings at all? And, and why is this becoming an increasing problem as, we, as we're going into the Green New Deal?
1: Well, I'll actually roll back very, very slightly on that. Why do we not maintain our buildings to, 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 um, to hmm. decent levels of quality? Um, before we get to insulation, we'll come to insulation in a second. If you're in a if you're living in Scotland, then there is more than a 50 percent chance that the the building or the home that you're living in is going to need some level of disrepair. Uh, So some level of repair. So, actually, the first thing we should be doing is maintaining our buildings. But the Scottish Government's maybe not so keen on talking about that because it's not quite as sexy as things like energy efficiency and renewables. Um, Building disrepair in Scotland is a massive problem. We don't talk about it. Um, But once you've got your home to a decent level of, uh, you know, a a decent standard, and obviously with, you know, climate change being the biggest threat to humanity, um, more so than the virus. then, you know, insulation allows us to use less energy for heating um, and it should, if it's done properly, allow us to use less energy for cooling if we don't put too much in. Um, and once you've got a nice energy efficient home, um, which might mean doing things like, you know, putting um, uh, putting uh, proper double glazing in, um, insulating your loft to a sensible level and not come to over insulation in lofts because yeah. it does happen, um, you know, draft proofing, and getting the building back up into a, uh, you know, into the sort of standard it was designed to and brought up to the current building regs. Um, And the reason I say the sort of way it was, it was designed originally, tenements are incredibly energy efficient buildings for their time. Um, So, you know, one of the things we don't Necessarily want to be doing, and others will disagree that you can seal up a tenement to make it very, very um, airtight and everything else. But generally, if you get a tenement up to a really good, um, really good standard of of maintenance, and you put some draft proofing in, and you get your windows done, um, if the council allow you to, because some are in conservation areas, um, then at that point we can start dealing with the amount of energy that we're actually using and how much of that we need to be generating from um, renewables. So. if you think that you know say putting a heat pump on and we can maybe talk about the pros and cons of heat pumps at later or at some point um, you don't want to be installing a system that is either undersized or oversized um, because if it's un, if, if it's undersized you won't get enough heat out, heat out of it to to keep your home to a comfortable level um, and if it's oversized you're going to be paying too much for the, the, the cost of the kit um and you're going to be using uh, or you know, you're generating heat you can't really do anything with generating electricity um and heat that you can't do anything with um, you know where i'm going on this um so you want to be paying an optimal amount for the amount of um energy that you need to use to heat your home and cool it and use all your appliances and stuff um and that then actually makes it easier for build, for building scientists like me when we come to the statistics to think well okay you know that 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 um, building is operating and using about the amount of energy that we think it should be using, um, very very few buildings actually um, uh, act, you know actually opt- operate optimally. Um, but we can come into this when we when we start going a little bit deeper into epcs and why epcs are a complete waste of space
0: uh, <laughs> yeah i do have a a bit of an anecdote about that about, about visiting a a demonstration um passive building in scotland um probably shouldn't mention the names but um and this this building in particular was it's not a home it was a commercial building and it was it was heated by uh, three ground source heat pumps because that was the number that the, the engineers designing the place had scoped out for the size of the heating system for the size of this building. But they had completely underestimated the the, the thermal efficiency. So the, the owners of the building were saying, we actually only rarely use more than one of the heat pumps at any given time, even in the depths of winter. So yeah, you, you I really get that point about um, matching up your heat demand uh, with with the, the the source that you're using it, you have to get these numbers down quite precisely. Otherwise, you're you're either going to be too cold or you're going to be wasting resources. Um, and. I do really get your point about maintaining buildings because uh, when my wife and I moved into our our current house, we knew we were getting a fixer-upper. But there was certainly a bit of a sinking feeling when we had a a rainstorm not long after we moved in and uh, we discovered there was water coming down the 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 chimney and seeping through the walls and this damp patch was spreading over our living room it was not pleasant and um, that's all fixed now we have replaced the roof we've been insulating the loft um, all nice uh, green new deal friendly insulation as well but that's for another story uh, <laughs> that journey there so as uh, as we mentioned that we're going to be talking about energy performance certificates this is the the framework we use to measure energy efficiency what are they what do they measure and how do they actually measure the the thermal efficiency of a a building?
1: Right, measure for a start is probably um, slightly misleading. Um, The way we generate a a full EPC um, for a new building, um, it all goes back to the building research establishment's domestic energy model, um, what we know known as BREADEM, it's now in version 12 um that's the model that underpins the standard assessment procedure which is the tool that's used to generate epcs um, or full epcs so if you if you've got a new building it will be run through breedem um and sap and used to produce an epc Um, if you're in an existing building the chances are um it will they will they will cut a few corners a lot of corners Mm -hmm. um and use the reduced data set standard assessment procedure um which if you've ever done a home energy check and most i think I thought most people have by now um it's really not much more than that data if 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 that you know it's exactly that sort of thing and from that we're expected to work out how much um you know an individual building um how much energy an individual building uses uh, i'm simplifying a bit but i'm not simplifying much um so um that then generates your, your epc which is the energy label you get on your on your home um, and you know as well as i do that the, you know um we don't use a lot of real data. So, so calling it measuring is, is really stretching it. Um, and one of the things that me and my team have argued for for years and years and years, and in fact, I was arguing before I moved to Scotland, um, is that we need to be using more and more um, real data and using it better. Um, just for a little bit of, just so I know, you know, this is why I know what I'm talking about. My PhD was actually is actually in domestic energy consumption. And as part of that, I did the first study in the UK to use actual annual energy consumption data to look at um, technical, social and economic differences in, um, in energy consumption um, for a few hundred buildings spread across Leicester and Sheffield. Um, and then with Ron Mould who's also a member of the energy group when he was doing his PhD with me um, back around about well, he finished in 2018 but he started in 2013 working full-time so um, we did the first study in Scotland and then as a spin-off of that we did the first study to look at the differences um, between urban households and those in rural and island areas and what we showed uh, funnily enough was that the the um, not just that the, the, the energy spend gap, the, you know, the energy expenditure gap is much greater than what the Scottish government's figures, which are based largely on EPCs and RDSAP and SAP, um, were saying. That gap is much bigger um, than what the official statistics were suggesting. But also the distributions are different. Um, so if you look at the distribution of, of energy costs for urban householders, um, they are effectively, um, it's not linear, but there's a very, very, very strong skew towards um, lower expenditures. And that's because of things like sharing heat in tenements, um, because, you know, all, all the sorts of things you would expect about urban areas. Um,
0: yeah, so, so basically you someone at, someone on a top flat benefits from someone yeah, below them putting heating on, that kind
1: of thing. Yeah, and more um, uh, more standard-type housing, um, whereas if you go out into rural and island areas, um, there's a whole load of different behavioural factors. You know, people tend to come and go through their doors a lot more. Uh, and, you know, people have animals um you know dogs small herds of sheep that kind of stuff um and what we see is actually it, it it's it's uh it's not um it's not like a normal curve distribution but it is a very very different distribution in rural and island areas and it does skew much more towards people spending more money on their energy on their energy and particularly on heating um so that's what we showed and that's actually why we managed to get a um the the, the financial uplift for um, rural and island householders into the Fuel Poverty Act, which is the one success we've had. Mm. Um, we've been fighting on EPCs for a lot longer. <laughs>
0: um, I mean, one, one, from, from talking to you over the years about things like domestic energy use, one of, the, one of the things that I think raised my eyebrow and got me really interested was when you told me that there's a surprising amount of house energy goes into flushing the toilet. Because you have to heat up that 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 block of water in your cistern. It comes up to room temperature. You flush it away and you replace it with new cold water.
1: Yeah, that what that wasn't me that did it. I can't claim that. That was work by um, uh, Angela Druckmann at Surrey University. Mm. And she gave a presentation at a conference that I helped organize quite a few years ago. And I said to her afterwards, that'd be the one thing that everybody who's at this conference takes away from it. But yeah, the <laughs> The single greatest, the, the single individual greatest energy use in the life cycle of a toilet is in the heat that you flushed away when you flush the toilet, because, um, you know, if you're, well, we're working from home a lot more now. But if you're, you know, if you're away from your house all day, that water sits there, you know, soaking up the heat and then it gets flushed away um, and you can actually now get. Um, I don't know how I don't know how easily available that but you can actually get some kind of heat recovery system for toilets and this is a it's a minor thing but I'm I'm like why the hell don't we have these systems for tenements because where tenements you've got shared drains and you could actually take that heat and pump it back into the um, into the atrium space. Um, But that's that's a minor thing you know but it, it seems so obvious as a way of just saving a bit of energy.
0: Yeah, but as we go through the Green New Deal, we're obviously going to catch the the low hanging fruit first, and uh, and we'll be making the 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 big changes. But as we get towards the end of it, we should be looking at these small minor things that shave off an extra percent here or here or there. Because I mean, heat recovery is still recovering and reusing resources, and we should do that wherever it's it's feasible. Um, but coming back to the the EPCs, okay, they are really obviously really flawed i mean there will people who will be people out there that defend the idea of modeling um and you know being being a scientist both of us we, we will be well aware of the power of of modeling but we are also very aware that you have to you have to make sure that your assumptions are valid and, and the best way of doing that is testing it on real data uh if you're not doing that how badly wrong can it go how just how big a gap are we talking about with with between what an EPC says a house should be and what you actually find when you measure it,
1: All right. The short answer is orders of magnitude. So start off um, high, and yeah. Um, if you the thing with 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 M was it was originally developed on a group of about thirty houses in Milton Keynes, which were semis and semi detached, uh, detached and semis, I think, um, but a group of very very standard build homes in Milton Keynes with standard occupancy you know sort of two two adults child um, working you know normal nine to five hours and stuff and Breedem has evolved a lot since then and I'm not going to knock the people behind it because um as we as you've just said modeling is important and you know it, it serves a useful role um but it was always designed not to uh, it was always designed really to look at, at the building envelope so the bit, the bit you know your your walls your roof your heating systems that kind of stuff um the moment you shove people into it it flies it it you know it, its accuracy falls starts to fly out the window um at the time um, when i was doing my phd we actually had the national home energy rating services model as well which was a sort of a competing model and they were both partly funded um, by westminster um and my work showed that um, NHR was actually the better one because, again, it wasn't perfect, but it was more adaptable for occupancy. And in about 2012 ish, Westminster pulled their funding for NHR. Um, one good thing I will say about the Scottish Government is they did carry on using NHR and reporting both for a couple of years afterwards. But obviously, you know, <laughs> with the funding ran out, that was it. Um, again, NHR wasn't perfect. But the more you start drifting away from a standard sort of a standard Two bed, two, three bed semi built in the 1980s and situated in Milton Keynes. So you've got to consider the outdoor environment and the temperature and climate and stuff and all of all of that as well. Um, the more you get um, yeah, the more you the more the more you get a divergence between the real world and what's actually in the model. Um and it will get to the point that if you're thinking of, say, a traditional building up on Shetland, you know, you can pretty much ignore it. <laughs> um we, I think we, we said we might come to try build the uh, traditional builds a bit more but they're really really not good at dealing with um you know older traditional properties which do tend to be very individual as well I mean tenements yeah. yes so but but you're sort of your typical you know old traditional buildings in the highlands and islands uh, all buildings are unique um you know no building will perform exactly the same as the building next door to it, even with very very standard um, conditions, you know, same heating system, same wall design, that kind of stuff, because there will all be, um, you know, there will all be subtle differences, and that could be that could be physical stuff, it could be stuff to do with the occupants, it could be you know local you know, microclimates. Um, so the more you diverge, diverge away from the standard, the the, the bigger the um, the bigger the difference gets. Um, I was going to go somewhere with that. I'll probably remember that round. Oh, yeah, yeah. In terms of how we assess that, um, I'm going to start mentioning the Energy Saving Trust in a minute because I can't avoid it. Um, but a lot of when when um, a lot of surveys are done, um, they you quite often get shortcuts like drive-by surveys. So somebody, if they're, you know, I think it's slightly different if, you, if you're putting your house up for sale and you're having the EBC done as part of that. But if you're generating a sort of... Um, Uh, a a database of sort of EPC type data, it's not uncommon for somebody to drive past in a car down a street of houses, and they'll look at the age of the property, um, or they'll they'll think they know what the age is, um, and they'll look at sort of the general conditions, and they might just say, well, okay, we think this building was built in year whatever, and therefore it will have whatever level of lost insulation. Um, If anybody's ever had, people who've had an assessment done, Will know that it's not a requirement for the building surveyor to go up into the loft because of health and mm-hmm. safety regulations. Um, now, in the case of the, I, I saw my old house just over a year ago. In the case of that, we had a building surveyor come around and she wasn't very good. Um, I said, you know, I've got a fixed lot, I had a fixed loft ladder, one of these pull down ones, totally safe. Um, you know, so I said, well, you know, it's perfectly safe for you got to go up in the loft. Uh, no, 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 no. Like, right. Uh, well, up there you'll find I've got 150 mil loft insulation, and it's um, uh, it's a sheep's wool um, recycled plastic mix produced by a wonderful company called Thermofleece, based down in the north of England, um, who I highly recommend. Um, now, um, different types of insulation will perform in different ways as well, and we, we mentioned overheating. I just want to touch on it because this yeah. will come yeah. up with the mandatory improvement stuff that we have talked about before, and we put out on our website, and. Um, Thermofleece and similar type products are great because you get a much better um, thermal profile, um, which means if you if you think you know you heat your home up, it gets hot, um, you cool it down it gets cool, um, but where you're using certain materials and um, you know sheep's wool is one, um, recycled cellulose from newspapers is another. You actually you actually flatten out that curve if you especially if you if you're using your, your boiler you know well and all that kind of stuff but you I was actually achieving in my old house which was a um, two-bed terrace uh, stone terrace um so stone side walls, brick front walls um, I was getting 21 degrees C flat upstairs can't comment on downstairs because I have dogs and back door was always open for the dogs <laughs> to come and go and that was great and you know aside from the depths of winter or the height of summer um that, that was giving me a really, really comfortable environment. But in summer, it would overheat. And if you get an EPC done at the moment, um, if you've got 150 mil, it will, one of the recommendations that will come back is to boost up to 250 mil of insulation. And I turned around to her and I said, look, the reason that's in there is because this property is already overheating in the height of summer. And me and my boss, probably about 10 years ago now, I had a meeting with Scottish Government when, and he is an urban heat island specialist. Um, we were trying to convince the Scottish government there were tent- they were h- homes in Edinburgh that were overheating back then, and they just did not want to believe us. And it's like, we've got the data. We've actually got the measured data from like, uh, you know, from homes. I think his data is coming from Glasgow more than Edinburgh. But, you know, this was 10 years ago. Um, so I would not have put an extra 100 mil of insulation on Another thing the the building surveyor picked up on which I managed to get removed from the EPC um, was she said, oh, you've got a um, um, you've got a a cavity that can be filled. And bearing in mind, I teach building surveyors and I did turn around to her and say, well, I can tell you where in uh, I I can find out and tell you where in Breedem to to put the adjustment in for this if you want. But you can tell by the fact that my vent, um, the vent that's in the wall is underneath the the bay window that that is not a full fillable cavity. And it's probably not one that you should fill um, because some cavities are fine to be filled, particularly in more modern properties. Mm. But the reason that you tend to get cavities um, in older properties is to, is to improve airflow um, and to deal with moisture buildup and all the damp that will come from that. Um, and of course, this was an, underneath a window. It's like, well, there's not a full wall set above it. So, um, so that was a little bit of an argument. Um, but, you know... I just said, well, I can go back and check with people other you know, people that I know, and we can tell you that that's the case. Um, so we do. I, I have to be careful because I work for a university that trains an awful lot of building surveyors. I hope she wasn't one of ours. Um, clearly not up to our standards. Um, but this is not difficult stuff. And. Um, the, that and, and that's dealing with building surveyors. A lot of the, the sort of the home energy advice that you get um, from the likes of the Energy Saving Trust will be delivered by um, people who have probably at best a city and Guilds qualification in energy awareness. Um, they are not building scientists. They are not building surveyors. They are not certified. Um, you might find the odd one that is, but I would imagine they'd be able to earn far better money um, somewhere else. Um, and the reason that we're getting this push on this now this is where we're getting into the EST, um, as has been seen in the ferret recently, and was it came through in the news that was in the Herald as well, that Scotland does appear to be run by quite a lot of organisations that like getting money out of the Scottish government in return for saying nice things about them and having a bit of influence and all that kind of stuff, and the the EST portrays itself as a lovely you know not for profit um, organisation that's there to that's there to you know help energy efficiency in Scotland. Um, and they're actually very, very good at helping um, shall we generalizing only very slightly, um, getting middle class people to put decent levels of insulation into their homes. Um, but they just because they're not for profit and I've worked for a not for profit, so this is experience talking, not for profits does not mean they're not out there to make money. Um, they're not, they won't be making money for shareholders, but they'll be putting money into their business so that in times of, uh, you know, financial problems, they've got that capital there and to grow their own capacity. And it is very, very much in their interest to peddle how wonderful EPCs are. And they've been doing this for a long time. Um, they make quite a lot of money out of delivering home energy checks. Um, so you know, it's great that we've got a service like that, but it really should be publicly owned and fully transparent. Um, And if if anybody wants to sort of take me up on this, um, if you go onto our website, um, my own website at www.energypovertyresearch.org, you can find the the Energy Performance Certificates paper and a few other things on there. You know, this is, I I don't see this as particularly controversial. And every consultation response that we've written has been saying exactly the same stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I won't bore everybody with with the story about the time I led the review of the energy assistance package for the Scottish Government and what happened there because that's uh we've not actually published the evidence on that we could do um we we should have legally challenged the Scottish Government over it but um yeah we will probably just publish it anyway and I don't uh, having spoken to civil servants about it I don't think for one moment we're going to get sued about what happened with that but um there were some fairly serious allegations involved and we communicated them to the minister and um, I think the, the civil servants when we had the meeting said, oh, it didn't happen on our, on our watch anyway, so we're not concerned. Right, fair enough. I'm only accusing you of breaking the Data Protection Act and a couple of other things. Um,
0: well, but hey, so, that's
1: a story for another time.
0: Yeah, I mean, folk, folk who are subscribed to the Commonwealth Newsletter will know that our our month our first monthly Monthly policy newsletter went out this morning in which I, I was talking exactly about uh, the the need for greater transparency in government. So um, nice little segue into the plug for for that. If you've not if you've not signed up for the the common rule newsletters, please do. You'll get a weekly roundup of everything that we're we're getting up to, and once a month you'll uh, get a, a letter from me telling you uh, about the about what is interesting in policy news in Scotland. So I'll, send, I'll put a wee link to the, the newsletter in that. So you you probably already answered this one in part, Keith, but if EPCs just don't work, if they're just this flawed, why does the Scottish government still use them? And there was a, a, a bit of a, a thing during the election um, there to from, from the SNP, there was a promise in there to improve EPCs, uh, um, can they be improved? What is the Scottish government looking to do to try and improve them? Can they well, actually be fixed?
1: Well, the long-awaited consultation landed a few days ago. Um, and it's interesting reading it because some of the language that they use could actually have been pinched from our word. I don't that they can have it. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a few bits of language in there that I was like, didn't we write almost exactly that sentence? Um, yeah. Uh, the reason we have to have them and th- there are good reasons I, I don't want everybody just to turn around and go well EPCs are a complete waste of time because I do think they are redeemable um, if we took the sorts of action that the Scottish government is not minded to take um, they, they they were brought in under the European Energy Performance of Buildings Directive which is a really really good directive actually and it's very very clear um, what is required and it, it's the same sort of energy labeling that you get on appliances and things as well it's exactly the same sort of um, uh, principles and thought processes, stuff that go on behind it. The guidance on it is really good as well. Um, now, the long version of this is in our policy paper, which we've already mentioned. Um, but we did go through it in that paper, and we said, okay, well, this is what it's actually saying. Um, and I wrote it with Ron Mold. It was actually the first policy paper we did for Commonweal. Um, we wrote that because the number of times that we've been to you know events and spoken, and people just turn around just to us and go, right, well, if not EPCs, what? well, we have to have EPCs um, of some form. So what we, th- we yeah, we're building scientists. We sat back and we thought, right, what would we do? We looked at the, uh, the directive and because of our work using using real data, we thought we it actually, the, the directive is very, very supportive of using real data. Um, it also wants, you know, not surprising for the EU, wants a lot of harmonization across Europe. Um, and I think over time, you know there there are more data issues in some countries than others but i don't think it would be in, i don't think it would be at all impossible to get um, real data into most epcs in most countries um, you won't get that for um, new builds because yeah they have to be modeled until people go into them but then simply what you do there is you do a modeled assessment based on bredem um, you'd have to do it on bredem really um, and then a couple of years later you go back and you do you know you get you get the energy bills um now these energy bills aren't going to be you know aren't going to be perfect because if you're say say you're a, a you know a young family moving into a house that's been vacated by somebody i don't know an elderly person living alone then then the amount of energy that you're going to use is going to be completely different to the people that you know that you're, you're buying the house off um but one of the things that we say in the paper and one of the things they sort of hint at in the consultation um we suggested or we recommended uh, that future EPCs could take some sort of anonymised um, uh, general data about the householders that, that are selling the property um, you know, uh, number of house, you know, number of people, what their sort of working pattern was, um, if the property had been empty for any significant period of time in in the year before. Um, It's not impossible. In fact, I would say it's not difficult to get hold of annual energy consumption data for every household in the UK, because it is collected by the energy companies and it is uh, passed on to Westminster, which is how I got my data for my PhD. Um, There are other ways of getting it as well. Um, But... um, as always with the Scottish government, where they where they find a problem and they can go, ooh, um, uh, well, that's a non-devolved issue. They, they tend to rely on that rather than trying to think of sort of creative solutions. The reason that's in the consultation document for why we might not do that is because that would mean um, moving away from alignment with England and Wales as well. And I'm like, well, yes, and? Mm, yeah. You know, we want to become an independent country. We want to maintain better alignment with the EU, the EPDP... Uh, the, the directive is really quite clear on what it says. Um, no, they don't want to support a, a separate Scottish model. And there's you know a simple cost reason for that. But we never said that in the first place. We said that would be you know unrealistic based on the costs of it. But we might want to throw BRE a bit of money here. Yeah, some of my friends there will, uh, will go, oh yeah, give us more money. But we might want to throw BRE a bit of money for a bit more of a Scottish fork of it. Um, the government would have to have that conversation with them. Um, and, uh, you know, look at the costs involved. But I think it would, it, it would be another little, little sort of a step forward. Um, but using more real data, um, we can do. Um, and that doesn't necessarily have to go through modeling. And actually, that will then improve the models. Um, you know, building modelers love dealing with real data because it's like I can validate my model against it. Yeah. Um, and it will mean that when we get new buildings constructed, that the the model performance of those buildings will be much closer to what the householders should expect when they move into them, which benefits everybody. Um, but we can. Yeah, go I mean, to
0: the- that's that's actually re- re- that's sorry. actually a really important point that that get, getting this data now on on existing use cases then allows you to design better houses in the future, uh, and that's certainly something that I've been shouting about at the moment that in in the sense that. Right now, we're still building things at sort of relatively conventional thermal energy standards, but we're doing it knowing that by 2045, we need to have a Green New Deal. So you have houses going up just now that within the lifespan of their mortgage will have to be extensively retrofitted. So what I've been trying to shout at is for the, for the Scottish government to start ramping up building, reg- building regulations so that new builds are built at green New Deal standard today. So maybe this is a way of of, of, of getting that pushed through is to start doing this sort of real life energy modeling surveys that that we can do that we can use to then make sure that these new buildings are built to the standard that we will need come 2045.
1: Yeah and to deal with changing climates. There's the other thing as yes. well, you know, we've seen in the news recently that that the impacts to climate change are happening, you know, a lot more severely than than, than the models and the models behind climate change modeling are much, you know, orders of magnitude more sophisticated than building models because they have some of the most powerful computers in the world working on them. Um, you know, If you look at an energy map of London, um, the Met Office computer uses vast amounts of energy um, <laughs> for, for good reason. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's one of the most powerful computers in the UK. Um, the climate models it runs are incredibly sophisticated, and building models, you know, they're not quite the same. They're they're not bad, and um, I'm, I'm trying to be balanced and not be too critical because I don't think you know the idea of having a national building model is a bad thing at all. I think it's a good thing, um, but building models are very, very not good at dealing with things like humans. Um, I was writing this down yesterday for something totally unrelated i used to live in a single brick terrace in leicester where i was doing my phd um, and it was it was a single brick end terrace so the the end wall was exposed um, to make matters worse the radiators were metal and they were actually screwed into the the exposed wall um, we had a decent level of loft insulation i guess it was about 150 mil mm or something a similar problem to what i used to have in the old house um, it was overheating in summer um, and uh, but conversely, because of the the poor condition of the property, it was freezing cold in winter. So what we used to do during winter, me and my, me and my housemate would would well, we would basically live upstairs because we could use electric heaters rather than the boiler, which was probably more than fifteen years old and that it, and the rest, poorly maintained, useless letting agency. Um, you know, so bad that that um, the one point our shower broke, we we had to withhold our rent in order to get it fixed. You know, that kind of scummy letting agency. Um, so yeah, so, so during, the, during, um, during the winter, it would become so cold that if we had friends around, um, you know, we'd either socialize in our bedrooms or, we, or if we were making dinner, we'd put the gas fire on and blast it. Um, and then during the summer, it would overheat um, because the loft insulation was actually quite good. And we rigged up a, a sort of a chimney system where we had a, a big standing fan in the hallway and our bedroom doors open and the windows in the bedrooms open. And we'd use that to draw, um, draw the cool air up from downstairs so you get the chimney stack effect effectively and there is no way that a that <laughs> a building model can cope with that you know that's occupants doing the sort of stuff that it goes oh uh, uh, that's really non standard behavior and things like that you know okay that's that's maybe a little bit more sophisticated than somebody would do but you know using all the sorts of adaptive behaviors that people that people use um, you know, people who are quite happy to sit in Twelve degrees Celsius in large, you know, putting all their clothes on, you know, or people who are, you know, I don't know, there say people who are happy to wear very little around the house, not in the heat of the summer and stuff. Um, yeah. All, all these, all these adaptive behaviours that that, um, that happen, and this is before we even get to fuel poor householders who, you know, are, oh, uh, yeah, it in a, in such different situations, um, just. just I, I think people need to be aware that we we there are a number, I'm gonna say a number, a significant number of people in, in Scotland and the rest of the UK, but there are a significant number of people in Scotland who who um find it so expensive to heat their properties that they just don't. Um or quite commonly, if they've got an electric if they've got um, a gas meter they, or an electricity meter, they might put 40 pounds, 20 pounds on it at the end of the at the start of the month. And when that runs out, they do without. Um now, Offgem until a few years ago, basically even refused to recognize that these people existed. Um, I was at a Citizens Advice conference, um, oh, goodness, about four years ago now, and Offgem had just started this project on self-disconnectors and self-limiters, and I was like, have you not been doing this work already? Um, uh, imagine the response. I was like, well, I can tell you from a study that we'd done a couple of years before that, that we'd identified a group of self-limiters. Um, the, the the urban rural study that we did, we worked with, well, one of the organisations we worked with was um, Lockhals and Sky Housing Association. Um, and we were, we were looking at a group of properties um, of theirs that were uh, built between about 2008 and 2011. They were on a meter biomass heating system. Um, re- you know, very, very standard properties. And we knew an awful lot about them. Um, and some of those People were reporting very, very low to near zero energy bills. And it was would have been, well, it was quite easy. It would have been quite easy for us to turn around and say, right, well, okay, these numbers. If you, if you were, if you were a, a, a civil servant, you'd probably say, well, they're outliers. They're errors. They're, they're we'll just dis- disregard them. But because of actually working with a housing association, um, we can turn around and go, well, actually, they were self-limiters. And those are the sorts of people that we really need to be getting support to. Um, And not actually to improve the conditions of their properties, because their properties were modern, Um, but to get um, uh, financial support in, to get support for them to understand their energy bills, to get mental health support in if they were worried about them. Actually, fear of debt is as much a factor as actually being in debt itself when it comes to the sorts of problems that that fuel poor householders face. Um, Yeah, it's... when we deal with the fuel poor, we have to put people, we have to put folk first. I've got to get that in because Ron came up with it um, and it, it, it's a bit of a meme that's, that's carried on. Um, another problem we have with the Scottish government um, is that they have what they call the fabric first approach. So they want to deal with fuel poverty first by insulating properties and you know, making them all energy efficient and stuff. Um, that's fine for energy efficiency, but when it comes to fuel poverty, it is generally not the technical factors that are the overriding factors. Um, don't not deal with them. That, you know, we certainly got to deal with them, but actually, we have to look at the people first. Um, and yeah, mental health, physical health, um, uh, uh, ability to understand energy bills, English not being a first language, um, all these sorts of social problems. So, I will always say that you don't understand fuel poverty if you don't understand sort of the building side of it, because that allows you to basically rule out or rule in all the other, the the fundamental problems that you can tackle fairly easily and um, understand how buildings work. But it is predominantly a social problem. Um, And that's something that I really don't think the Scottish government understands. Um, We've tried, Um, some will say that they do, in which case, you know, why aren't you funding more um, community-based energy advocacy services?
0: So, yeah, I mean th- this, this is this, this is, is something this is that even old I've old. only just recently started to appreciate and it's really only through my own lived experience as well uh, of um you know trying to trying to fix up my own house and, and looking at the, the various grants and loan schemes that could be available to help me out with them I don't qualify for very many of them because of my own circumstances but I can end up in the situation where the cost of paying back the loan, of insulation could be more than the saving I'm making on the, 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 the heat, the the heating, and it might work out over the long term. but that doesn't help me for that month's payment. And if I, if, if, you know, for folk who are um, more financially stretched than I am, that that's a real concern. So I really, I'm I'm going to eliminate that fabric first approach from my own lexicon and move to folk first, um, because that's, that's something that, that, Really, is important that um, we will have to do a podcast uh, episode in future on on the grander scheme of retrofitting strategy uh, as we move into the Green New Deal. We do have uh, a, a, an upcoming policy paper on on retrofitting in Scotland, so those are uh, that will be that that will be our. Uh, a publication um, in the not just dis- not too distant future. We have a massive pile of research here at Commonweal that we're desperately trying to to get out uh, far too much um, to to get out in a in a way that does them justice. Um, and on that note, Keith, what are you adding to our pile? Uh, what's what's ah. up next that you're working on? <laughs>
1: yeah, we were saying this before we came on. Um, we've got a paper on how we can build high rise with um, uh, with modern. Cross laminated timber products, which can be made out of Scottish softwoods, um, which has been written um, based on the work of a, a great dissertation student of mine, um, Kirsten Means, who will hopefully come on a future podcast because she can talk about it, not me. Um, but she's just done a dissertation with me and um, it's been great. And she's joined the energy group as well, so hopefully she's going to stay around. Um, and Oh, we've got, well, you and I are going to be having a meeting with uh, with our friends in Inverclyde, Agnes McCauley and co, uh, next week about how we yep. can do the, uh, how we can start implementing the common home plan in Inverclyde. Um, there's a similar thing being cooked up here in Fife. Um, now, I'm not going to say any more on Fife at the moment because we've got something launching on the 9th of August that I can't talk about, um, but I, yeah, I, I've been leading it with, a, with, a, with some names who, yeah, will we'll be known to Yeah. Um, But uh, what I suppose I'll hint at is that the 9th of August is the day that the the first, uh, the the Working Group One report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, is published. So it might be related to that. Um, And that's all I can say at the moment, because we want to keep it a surprise, particularly from, um, yeah, particularly from our First Minister, maybe.
0: Well, If she's listening to the show, you'll find out on the 9th of August or shortly <laughs> afterwards when we get Keith back on to talk about talk about <laughs> that. Uh, thank you, Keith, for coming back on. It's always oh, a pleasure no to talk to but you. Always,
1: yeah, likewise. Always good to see you. And I'm uh, yeah. sure we'll be swapping a lot more emails over the next couple of weeks.
0: Yes, indeed. And I will finish this podcast, as I always do, by reminding folk that, uh, that Commonweal is an organisation that is entirely funded by... listeners and our supporters Uh, we don't get government money we don't have corporate sponsorships we don't even have adverts on our website we're funded entirely by our donations which average about 10 pounds a month per person and from things like our our newly reopened shop where you can come along come along and buy t-shirts you can buy merchandise you can buy our books including our green new deal plan which shows us how we can actually become uh, a more equal fairer and decarbonize scotland by 2045 so please check out our our website commonweal check out our our news section on the website which is being updated uh, regularly now sign up to the newsletter and continue listening and sharing the podcast especially when we're back next week